0: Last week, we started the second part of the book of John, the book of glory. We looked at the incident of the foot washing, where Jesus washes all the disciples' feet and how astonished they are by that act. And we learned that that was uh, just a natural thing for deity to do. And when Jesus, who was so concerned with the glory of God, when he saw that as an opportunity to, to express the beauty of God's character to the apostles. He did it without, without even batting an eye. And um, today we're going to continue on in that same conversation. It's the same scene and uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're going to fill, even, fill that out even a little more as we continue in John uh, chapter 13. And what, can I please ask you to stand one more time if you're able for the reading of God's Word. Out of respect for the reading of God's Word. This is... God's inerrant and infallible word, John 13, starting at verse 18. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side of One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy whatever we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, for the beauty of it, how it re- reveals your character to us, but also how it teaches us, Lord, and teaches us, us hard lessons, and, but ultimately it teaches us how much you love us, Lord, how much you... have love us and the extent that you have gone to love us and that you are, even now, Lord, transforming us by the power of that love through your word as you speak to us in it, Lord. So we pray, Father, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So this is continuing on with last week with the the foot washing, and Jesus had just pronounced to all the apostles that they were clean, telling them in this beautiful, symbolic way that by the, by the action that Jesus was going to take, that what he was about to do, his death and his resurrection, was going to cleanse them from their sin. And then he starts out this passage by saying, but not all of you. And of course, he's speaking about Judas. This, and, and the betrayal of Judas, uh, this is John's primary location where he talks about that. And the big idea of this passage is is, is that it shows us the power of God, how powerful God is. There's a, if you're into martial arts, so you understand martial arts or you've studied it, there's a certain martial art called Aikido. This is true in, in all martial arts to a certain extent, but Aikido, the goal of Aikido is to is to, use, is to be passive and allow your opponent to use all of his power against himself to defeat himself. In other words, you just, you step aside and, you, and as, you, as your opponent charges at you, you step aside and reposition his wrist and he falls on the ground and breaks his arm in half. This is, if you understand that principle, the, the most wonderful thing about this passage is it shows how powerful God is in a similar way. That God is so powerful that he is able to use evil against itself. Evil walks right into his plan for the ages, and so he defeats evil by its own power. And what's even more amazing about this passage is that that very same power that is able to so conclusively and decisively defeat evil by using non-resistance, by using a non-coercive power of love, that very same power is the same power that protects us, that saves us, and that transforms us, and that we can count on that. And so the big idea, the thesis statement, the one thing that John and Jesus want us to know about this passage more than anything is that this very same power of God to glorify himself guarantees the protection and transformation of his people. The very same power that God uses to glorify himself guarantees the protection and the transformation of his people. Let's do that one little part at a time. First, the power of God to glorify himself. Look at verse, let's start down towards the bottom. Look at verse 31. And when he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. That's a lot of glory in two verses. It can be rather, that was confusing to me when I was first reading through it. And part of that is because we read, we read this account with the, our own real experience of death in mind. Our experience with death is one of defeat and sorrow, and so when we come across what we know is happening here, Jesus is heading into death. We're nef- we are I, we're we're just sorrowful about it. There's a there's a, a, our experience causes us to to respond, even subconsciously, with sorrow and, and and thinking in the terms of defeat. But that is totally not what's happening here. Jesus. Is seeing this and expressing his upcoming death in terms of glory, as you just heard. And this whole thing of glory can be super confusing. I read this definition this week in a commentary that, that really helped me to understand what God is meaning, what, what it means to glorify God, or what glorifying God, glorifying himself means. Listen to this. It says, It says, God is glorified. Through the visible manifestation of God's majesty in acts of power. In other words, in other words, God reveals his power to his creation. He reveals himself in some massive act of power and majesty, and then his we are startled by it. We're like we're, we're whoa, that, that's crazy. Or that's crazy about God. We are. Uh, our natural and then and, and then being startled by that realization of how big God is, how beautiful He is, how wonderful He is. Our natural just our natural reaction is a spontaneous worship when we go, "Wow, that's amazing about God." That is heartfelt natural worship that just is our heart produces. That's the kind of worship that God. Desires. It's a real worship, not a forced worship. Not a, it's 8 a.m. and I gotta read my Bible but I'm late to work kind of worship. It's the kind of worship where we are confronted with the majesty and power of God and through it, our natural reaction, our natural response is to say, God, you are holy. God, you are majestic. God, you are big. God, you are powerful. <sighs> And so we see here that the cross is being presented, Jesus' death and resurrection through the cross is being presented to us as this act of power, this visible manifestation of God's majesty on earth through this humble act, this non-coercive act of love that is going to overwhelm and overpower evil. And the best thing about it is that we see through this that Jesus is in total control of the events from beginning to end. Let me point out three things real quick. First, Jesus foretells the fulfillment of prophecy. That's, a, that's like a double divine act. He's not, this is not Jesus saying, hey, that was prophecy that just was fulfilled because I know the prophets. He says, a prophecy is about to be fulfilled and here it is. And I want you to watch it and I want you to see it so that when it happens, you will know that I am. The he there is added. He's, this is another account of Jesus revealing his divinity. He wants his apostles, who he is about to send out into hell on earth, he wants them to know who he is. That he is the same God who spoke that prophecy through the Holy Spirit into the prophets and that he is now telling them ahead of time this is what's gonna happen so that they would know who he is, but it's also merciful. He's revealing to them what they know to be okay because he knows, listen, he knows what they're about to go into and this, what this, this tells us something about the character of God. It tells us something about the character of Jesus is that his revelation to us, that he his letting us know things about himself is an act of mercy to hold us up when times get tough because You can imagine the apostles, when they were about to be killed, they would think back, did I I have that right? Is this worth dying for? Was Jesus really who he said he was? And we see Jesus giving them all these signposts, all these markers, all these evidences that says, yes, you're not wrong. I am who I say I am. And so when he asks us to do the tough things, most of us, Lord willing, will not be asked to die for our faith, but we are. in in just a few minutes going to be asked to die to ourselves for the blessing of our wives, of our husbands, for the blessing uh, of the people around us, for our family, friends, for our children, for the the salvation of the world even. And those are tough things to do, especially when it's going to cost us something. But here God says, so you will know that I am. So we would know that We serve the God of the universe when he calls us to tough things. Second thing, Jesus determines the time of his execution. How do we know this? Matthew tells us something a little bit more in his narration of the unfolding events, and that is this. Chapter 26, Matthew says, And then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth to kill him. But, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. In other words, they did not want to arrest Jesus in the middle of Passover because the people believed in him and they were afraid that there would be an open revolt if they did it. So they were quietly waiting for the Passover to pass and then they were going to enact their plan. But Jesus, verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 27, he looks Judas square in the eye and he says, Wait, what you're going to do? Do it now. In other words, your cover's blown. If you don't, you better do it now or not do it at all because I'm on to you. And he forces Judah's hand to go and begin the process of betrayal. And so we see that Jesus picks the time. He's in total control of what's happening. Third thing, Jesus commands the supernatural realm. Look at verse, I'm gonna read the whole thing of verse 27 again. And then after he had taken the morsel, Judas, Satan entered into him and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. I just kept reading that over and over, over and over as I was meditating on this passage this week and I kept asking myself the question, who is Jesus talking to right there? I think he's, He is eye to eye with Satan. Satan has just entered Judas and Jesus issues a command. That's an imperative verb there. He says, do it now. He looks Satan in the eye and he says, do it now. And they go. I mean, that just gives me the willies almost, the chills thinking about that, the the level of spiritual battle that is happening right there in that moment, the climax of the war in heaven, the ages-old war in heaven. Here's Jesus and Lucifer, the fallen angel, looking eye to eye, and Jesus commanding the show. And you know what the craziest thing about it is? Is the next verse where it says, and the apostles had no idea what was going on. Does that tell us something? Does that tell you something about us? It tells us that the apostles, the disciples, right? These are supposed to be the guys. They are able to literally be three feet away from the climax of the age-old supernatural battle between good and evil. And their senses, are, their spiritual senses are so dull they have no idea what's happening. I think, to me, that is that, 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 that should tell us something. That should tell us something about our own potentially dullness of spirit. It should tell us how, how easily it is, how easy it is for us to be blanked out to the spiritual reality that is going on around us every day, how our sin plays into that, and, and have no con- just no consideration. like Brian said earlier in the prayer, no conscious thought of God. And how dangerous that is. And it should drive us into a rhythm of prayer. Not as something extraneous to our lives, but as a fundamental necessity of being a Christian in the fallen world. And so, what does that say? Jesus foretells the fulfillment of prophecy Jesus determines the time of his execution. Jesus commands the supernatural realm and then uses their powers against them to win his victory over evil, the spiritual Aikido. And that tells us that the cross is the manifestation of God's majesty in an act of power. It is God's power on display, defeating evil by its own power through the power of love to an act of sacrificial love for us. And we can look at that and say, that is mind bending power, and that produces worship from our hearts. A natural outflowing of true worship. But there's something even better, and that is that that same power also guarantees the protection of his people. Look at verse 36. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So John takes this, all this space to tell us about the betrayal of Judas and how Judas betrayed Jesus. But he doesn't let us get out without bringing us face to face with the fact that Judas is not the only one who betrayed Jesus that night. Both Peter and Judas, Judas in, in some sense, betrayed Jesus, repudiated him, Both Judas and Peter were sorrowful later. There's a lot of similarities that the gospels bring out and yet, at the end of the day, Judas commits suicide and is lost and Peter is restored. What is the difference between these two men? John does not put this here on accident. He wants to teach us something about true faith. First difference. First difference is this, that Judas served Jesus for his own power and Peter served Jesus out of his own power. (laughs) You hear the difference? Judas served Jesus for his own power while Peter was serving Jesus out of his own power. Judas was in it for the money. In other words, he was in it for what he could get. He wanted earthly power. He wanted to use Jesus and early church as a means to gain political power, to get a political appointment for his own earthly desires and ends. And when he, as soon as he figured out that Jesus was not the king that he thought he was and that the kingdom was not what he thought it was going to be, uh, he cashed out with whatever money he could get, and he was out. Peter, on the other hand, was serving Jesus out of his own strength and and. He is trying to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of Peter rather than put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is teaching Peter a super valuable lesson about what it means to abide in Christ. That Peter, that you, that me, are not enough when it comes to a face-to-face showdown with sin. If we try to win by our own willpower, we will fail. But as he's been showing us through this whole section of scripture, what wins is a, 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 a process of humility, a process of self-emptying, which then allows the spirit to flow in so that when the temptation comes, we're able to withstand. He's teaching Peter a super valuable lesson. It's a merciful and loving thing. Second difference, Judas was sorrowful because his plan failed, while Peter was sorrowful because he failed the Lord. Big difference big difference. Ultimately, Judas was just left in despair over the failure of his worldly plans. Like we talked about uh, uh, the last time we were in Ecclesiastes, the nine most wealthiest men in the world. Most of them ended up killing themselves or in in prison because uh, they were just miserable. And the same thing with Judas. When Judas figured out that his worldly plans were done, he was miserable, his plans had failed, and so he was sorrowful that he didn't win and he killed himself, whereas Peter was sorrowful because he failed Jesus. And the third difference, and the biggest difference is this, is that Peter was chosen by God and Judas was not. And I hate to say it so abruptly, but that's how the scripture presents it. Peter was chosen by God and therefore protected by the power of God Wherein Judas was allowed by God to jump into the torrential river of sin and be carried away by it. And that's a sad fact, but it's true. How do we know that? Look at verse 13, 18. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen. But also, Luke tells us a little something more about this conversation. He tells us that Jesus has said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you think the father heard that prayer? And the last thing is, Look at verse thirteen thirty six. At the end of it, Jesus says to him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. That is the best promise ever. He's He's recounting his saying the same thing to the Jews earlier, but to the Jews he said, you will seek me and you will not find me, period. But to Peter, he says, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me later. That tells, look at what that tells us. It tells us about that power of God is protecting us. It's protecting his people. It's protecting Peter. Jesus was praying for him as Satan was tempting him with those denials, as he was repudiating God. As he was, when it says that, that Peter cursed and repudiated Jesus, that means in the ancient Near East, you would call a curse down upon yourself. He wasn't like swearing, like cussing and saying, I don't know the man. He was calling a curse down upon himself, saying, may I be slaughtered like an animal if I am not telling the truth. I do not know that man. We're totally repudiating Jesus, but at the same time he was doing that, Jesus was praying for him, had prayed for him ahead of time that his faith would not fail, that he would be restored, and that through this experience, he would then turn and strengthen his brothers. How, How is that? How is that possible? He could strengthen his brothers from this epic fail. This gives me and this should give us so much hope in our epic fails that we should do a dance. I mean, what does this tell us? This says that Jesus... Your epic fails, those of you who really believe in Jesus, it means that those epic fails, God is allowing them to fall out to teach you super valuable lessons like this one, that you are not enough in your own power to defeat sin. And he will let you run it out. He will let you be destroyed. He will crush you. He will break the bones so that he will heal again and heal with beauty and light and after being emptied by our failure, the Holy Spirit and its power can flow into us in true humility and true love and so Peter having learned that awful lesson could then strengthen his brothers. So that should tell us, you know, that should tell us that if we love Jesus and we're serving Jesus not for our own power, and if we're, sorrow, we're sorrowful because we failed the Lord and not just a worldly sorrow that we didn't get what we want, uh, that that lets us know that Jesus is praying for us and that he is using his power in heaven right now to protect us and he promises that we will be able to follow him in the end. So, point one, the power of God to glorify himself. Point two is the same power that God uses to protect his people, point three, that same power also guarantees the transformation of his people. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The beauty of the new covenant is that God has not only just saved us from the penalty of our sin, but by his power coursing through us by the Spirit, he is beginning to deliver us from the power of sin. He's delivered us from the penalty of sin. We're no longer guilty before him in a legal sense by our sin, but in this life, his, he, is, he is transforming us and bringing us out from under the power of sin that, is, that brings death in our lives. Sin always produces death. Death, but love in the biblical sense of a joyful and sacrificial service is to participate in the life of God even here and now in this age and that is what God is doing for us. And so the new covenant has a new commandment and that is Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Now what's new about the New Covenant? Doesn't that sound like what Jesus, what God has always commanded His people to do? Leviticus 19:18, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." What's new? What's different? I think this. I think the difference is that he is raising the bar for love within the church. Notice he says in Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in John 13, 34, he says, you shall love one another just as I have loved you. That's a higher bar, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to love our neighbor and to do for our neighbor what we want, hope to be done for ourselves. And I suppose you could extend that out to be saying, I would hope my neighbor would die for me, but... In this way, Jesus is saying, "I, how how has Jesus loved us? How has Jesus loved us? That's what he was explaining to us in the foot washing. It wasn't just about foot washing. He was symbolically explaining to us that he was laying down his life, that he was taking his life up again, and through that action, we would be cleansed of our sins, that we would be given new life, that Jesus sacrificially loved us through his death and resurrection, And now he's calling us as a church to do the same for one another. One another, which means within the church. There's all arguments about what does this mean, but I think it's pretty clear in this command, just love one another as I've loved you means to love one another within within the church. And I think the best explanation of what that means that I've heard was a a paper I read called Ephesians Radical. There's There's a book that you probably have heard of called Radical by David Platt, which calls us to shake off the lethargy of the American church and to disassociate ourselves with the American dream and instead to plunge ourselves wholeheartedly into mission and into sacrifice and into service to the world. And I think that's a great book. But there was a paper written called Ephesians Radical that pointed out the very real fact that in the book of Ephesians, which is probably uh, the, the most beautiful explanation or description of God's blessing to us in Jesus, all of God's blessings that he's given us through Jesus Christ, that we have been saved, that we are seated with Jesus in the heavenlies, that we have been brought out of death and into life, all just chapter after chapter of all these glorious things that God has done for us, It gets to the crossroads where Paul switches from telling us things that are true about us and Jesus and then asking us to respond to that. And instead of saying, now, because of everything Jesus has done for you, I want you to abandon everything and go into the mission field. He doesn't say that. That may be true of some people. He doesn't say, I want you to abandon everything and live a life of poverty. There's a certain sense when we should be simple people, but what he says is he goes into I want you to love one another. I want husbands to love your wives. I want wives to love your husbands. I want you to love your children. Employers, I want you to love your employees. And he goes through all of these regular, everyday stations in life, the boring, mundane, ordinary, everyday experiences that we have in life. And he says, I want you in these roles that I've given you, to love one another. That's Paul's primary instruction to the church. That doesn't discount the fact that we have missionaries, that we need missionaries, that we're to serve the world. But I think what he's pointing out and what this is saying to us is that first, we as a church are to focus on radical, sacrificial love to each other and that begins with whoever's closest to you. Man, it is easy for me to think about my love for, for people suffering with AIDS, HIV in Africa, but man, is it hard for me to love my wife because it's real, it's here, and it's now. Man, is it easy for me to love people on another continent, but how hard is it for me to consistently sacrifice and, and let God burn my selfishness off and empty me so that I love who's right in front of me, so I love my wife, so I love you, I love the the people in our church, I love our leadership that we work with, I love my children, I love my friends, in a real biblical, sacrificial way where I am seeking active lowliness in those relationships, like we talked about last night, or last week, which is how this passage dovetails so perfectly into the foot-washing. Jesus says, love one another. And if we do that, if we were able to do that, we would create this community that was so different from the world that people would just see it and be like, wow, they really love each other. Is that what, they, is that what the world says about us? Man, this passage is killing me this week, thinking about that. The world doesn't know us. The world does not know us for that. The world knows us for what we hate. The world knows us for what we're against. They know all about what we're against. Everyone knows the Christian sexual ethic. Everyone also knows that we don't keep it. Everyone also knows that we don't love each other in that way. That we don't hold each other accountable for that higher form level of love. But they know that we want everybody else to live like that. And so, uh, man, you know, here's the thing. I think Jesus says we are to love one another in that form of covenant love and relationship and it forms a community that is so different from the world that we become almost, uh, we become just just a, a spectacle of beauty for the world to see. And then that love that we have for one another overflows our community and turns into Leviticus 19.18. Then we shall love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. That's how the church is supposed to be acting in the world. We're supposed to be really pursuing these forms of active lowliness in all relationships and areas of life so that it produces this effect. And here's the scary thing. Here's the scary thing. Jesus says, he puts this postscript on the end of that, commandment to love one another. And he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. In other words, our love for one another, our, how well we resemble the reality of the sacrificial love of God in our communities, in our churches, and to the world when we do that, the image of God in people in the world recognize that as being of God and they know that we are disciples of the true God. And if we don't have that as the prerequisite to evangelism, we have no expectation of success. If we lead with political power, if we lead with muscle, if we lead with how you can be rich, if we lead with anything other than this kind of humble, sacrificial, active seeking of lowliness in the world for the good of one another, actual biblical love. If we don't do that first, we are good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot by men. That's the awful question. But the beautiful question is that Jesus says, I want you to love one another the way I have loved you. So that we don't have to look to the world and how they do things. We can look to the heavenlies. We can look to Jesus and say, how does God do things? How does Jesus do things? What is his spirit empowering us to do right now? And then out of that, we realize, we look, we see the majesty of God in that brilliant act of love in the crucifixion for us we sense we know the overwhelming power of god's love for us and then all we do is we just extend that love to those around us we love the way jesus has loved us and we, that make that becomes the center of our reality we are loved you are loved not by hollywood celebrities not by anyone but the uh, but the almighty god has come down and displayed his love for you. And if that is the central reality of our lives, that will color everything we do and give us the power to then be the hands and feet and the representation of Jesus in the world. And we can expect God to bless that and be fruitful because Jesus has loved us, because we're secure in that love we can let go of this world and love other people the way he has loved us. So what do we learn from all this in conclusion? First, that when we meditate on the scriptures that God reveals himself to us in startling and majestic ways that produces out of our hearts natural worship and a worship that is founded in his love for us and his astonishing power in the world. And that love for us has been focused in the death and resurrection of Jesus for us and the salvation that he has given us. And thinking about that should make our hearts sing in a way that is noticeable in the world. This tells us that God will often use our epic failures to sanctify us and bring us more life and so that we can rejoice in that. Even when we fail, we can rejoice and not be sh- ashamed because we know what God is doing. He's breaking us of our pride and he's bringing us his life and his joy. And so we can, be, we can praise God. Oh, I failed. Praise God that he loves me so much that he is disciplining me and bringing me into greater sanctification in life. And three, we can know that God is transforming us into people who participate in, in his kind of otherworldly love so that we can experience the blessings of the new age even now, but also so we can go out and be representatives of Christ in the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your word and what it tells us about you, that you love us so much that you sent your son to die in our place and you put that act of love on display and used it to defeat the powers of evil using their own powers against them and have brought them into submission as you have brought us into your family by adoption and that you love us, that you really, really love us and that you really, really are protecting us And that your spirit is right now really, really transforming us. Lord, we pray you would help us, Lord, not to fight against the beauty that you have for us. Lord, help us to let go our death grip on the futile things of this world. Whatever those may be for each one of us. The things that do not pay off. And help us to grasp onto you and your beauty, Lord. And we pray that you would make us a church that really loves each other, that's really there for each other, that really gets to know each other. And even though we're all sinners, that we would still love each other anyways. We would know that we're all in the same boat and that God is, you're using all of our own sin even to bring blessing to us, to help create in us that transformation where we love you, we love other people because you have loved us first. Lord, we thank you for your blessings. We love you and we praise you.